1, verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angels left her. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, everyone. So last week, we looked at kind of a collision of history and prophecy, personal disappointment, piety, all kind of coalescing when the angel Gabriel appeared to a Jewish Levitical priest named Zechariah, whose wife would become pregnant with a baby who would grow up to be John the Baptist. And then for today's portion of the story, it moves us north to Nazareth in Galilee, where we meet the Holy Family. So let's begin with the setting. So now, if you're familiar with the details of the Christmas story, you know that eventually we're going to make big stops in Bethlehem for the birth of Christ, and later in Egypt as Jesus' family is on the run from King Herod. So here's a map for a reference of the area. So to help you give you a sense of the scale of things, we've got modern-day Nazareth is all the way up top. And... Um, it's a city in northern Israel, which is approximately the same population as Iowa City today, if that maybe helps. And Bethlehem is very at the very bottom. Um, in modern Bethlehem, just south of Jerusalem in modern Palestine, is about this population of Waukee. So if you were to drive from Iowa City to Waukee, that's about how long it would take to drive from Nazareth to Bethlehem today. You'd have to go around some mountains, so you kind of go on the outside. But yeah, that's the idea. About two hours, and uh, you know, except that we're talking north-south instead of east-west. And I realize that in my analogy here, I'm at risk of comparing Jerusalem to Des Moines, which let's just pretend I didn't do that. Um, but a fun fact to keep our Iowa comparisons going, like if you, if you look, you can actually see Pella there, which is kind of a fun history thing. And actually, Kate, can you zoom in on that a little bit? That's good, that's weird, what is that? Can you zoom in, something weird there. Oh, there we go, that's better, Yarsma Bakery. I hadn't made that connection before, but that's really interesting historical information for us today. Um, okay, you can take that down. So, okay, but back to reality. Um, I'm sure it's no surprise that these places remain sites of uh, deep historical, national, spiritual, and personal significance and collision. This morning we're going to focus our attention on Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I'm ultimately going to try to make one main point, and it is this. In the kingdom of God, it is not by strength that one prevails. In the kingdom of God, it is not by strength that one prevails. So today let's attempt to suspend our priors related to modern geopolitics or the culture war usefulness of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. Let's try to approach this story with reverence is maybe the word I can think of. Let's see where the story takes us. So we begin where we left off in Luke 1 last week. Here are verses 26 through 38 to give us the story. And today I'm going to be reading from the NLT version of the Bible. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. 
Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. And what's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. So as it says right up top, God sent the angel Gabriel. So we see right away that God is authoring this story. And though expressed through angels and people and bodies and births, God's actions both broadly reveal his authoritative genius and genuine love for humanity, and these particular folks from a small town. It's easy to miss the many ways God initiates because he usually doesn't send Gabriel to like your apartment to freak you out. But during Advent, we're paying particular attention to how God initiates. He draws near to us and we draw near to him in our hearts. We draw near to each other in community and lastly, during Advent, we practice intentional waiting as we watch the time of the Incarnation draw closer. So Mary has become such an archetype, if you're familiar with that word, that it is sometimes difficult to see her amid all the religious hubbub surrounding her globally. You've got the many pilgrimage sites dedicated to her, feasts and holy days, you've got the Ave Maria, You've got Hail Marys at the end of football games, and there's a lot more. Um, and that's not to knock on Mary at all. And, you know, my best comparison is, I mean, Taylor Swift is having like a big year, and I really hope that she and Travis work out. Um, I think that'd be best for all of us, probably. Um, but like Mary's having a few big millennia, and I suggest we don't miss Mary in all of this amid the power of her story and her celebrity, so to speak. Mary's teaching us that in the kingdom of God, it is not by strength that one prevails. So the angel Gabriel appears and initially really throws Mary for a loop. But he begins to use language that Mary would have recognized from the Torah. And it did not take long for Mary to realize what she, or that she would be the virgin prophesied in Isaiah 7:14, which states. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So as we have already read, Gabriel put it this way. You will conceive and give birth to a son. Sound familiar? And you will call him Jesus. Or I'm sorry. And you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. 
So things like son of the most high and throne of his ancestor David would have Mary understanding what was happening. But of course, she didn't understand how this would happen. And so she asks, but she does so instructively for us and sets up a bit of a contrast between Zechariah, who we looked at last week, and her. So when Gabriel appears to Zechariah and reveals that Elizabeth will bear a son and Zechariah expresses doubt, he questions Gabriel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years, as though Gabriel and God didn't know that. Now, he's not wrong about like the mechanics of all this. It is pretty mysterious. And ultimately, I think Zechariah understandably let his years of disappointment redefine who God was in his mind. And it's his silence for us that's helpful, I think. It's not wrong to be surprised that your elderly wife gets pregnant. I mean, that's like pretty surprising. Um, But there is the tiniest hint, I think, of Satan's temptation to Eve in his doubt, which is, did God really say? After all, Gabriel, Gabriel had just told him what would happen. And perhaps Zechariah wanted a certainty that would put him back in the driver's seat. We don't honestly really know for sure. But it highlights a principle, I think, for us today, and that is that sometimes we try to flip the script back on God and force him to answer to us. We're discontent with only imaging God. We attempt to manage God. We can't manage God, of course, and instead we ought to respond to his love with love his friendship with friendship, his listening with listening. We draw near, and he draws near. So like Zechariah, Mary's response to Gabriel shows us that being confused or disturbed is okay. That's okay. But Mary's question is slightly different. She asked the angel, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. You could rephrase it this way. By what means... Will he make this happen since I do not know a man? So this is a very like literal, if you just took the language and splayed it out. Meaning, she's, not, she's betrothed, she's not married, she's not sexually active. How will she conceive? Mary isn't expressing doubt, she's assessing the plan's scope, to use sort of work language that I would use. This touches on something people have written about. They've debated it. They've researched it, and the question is this. Was Mary able to preserve her agency? That is, did Mary have a choice in what would happen to her? Now, I don't want to wade too deeply into this because it does require some speculation or at least drawing inferences. But I think, personally, that she was fully aware of what she was agreeing to. And I think it actually highlights just how special Mary truly is. Let's go back to Luke 1, verses 34 through 38. And I take her question to mean something more like this. I understand the significance of what you're saying, Gabriel. What happens next? Verse 34. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby will be born holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth will become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. 
And Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. So Gabriel's response reveals that the Holy Spirit's creative act here closely mirrors what we see in the very first chapter of the Bible. Genesis 1, as you might recall, puts it this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So God's protective, life-bringing presence will envelop Mary in a haze of brilliance of some sort. And the Most High will overshadow you. The Spirit of the Lord was hovering over the waters. There's this connection the Holy Spirit brings in these moments. God's Spirit was present in creating the cosmos, including the world and its inhabitants, and similar language is being used at the Annunciation, which is this story about Mary, showing a connection to the living word Jesus becoming flesh. So this is both supernatural, meaning it involves direct, divine action and an old word which is preternatural, preternatural, which is to say that it is of heightened or mystical or maybe exceptional naturalness, which is sort of a weird thing to think about. So Jesus is arriving via the exceptional but natural means of childbirth from a real woman. It's not like a goddess, right? But who is being born and how it is happening are definitely supernatural. Right? So we have this collision of natural and supernatural. But even the natural is abnormal in its naturalness, is what I'm trying to get at. So in a sense, God is saying, again, through this young woman's life, let there be light. This is the joyful news of Christmas and something that is distinctly Christian. She, she's having a baby. <laughs> a new genesis is bursting forth from a woman who by all ancient social standards, should have been forgotten by history and marginalized for her pregnancy. But God is announcing to the world again that it is not by strength that one prevails. Jesus isn't being formed in the same way as Adam. We see in Genesis 2-7 that God formed Adam out of the ground. It says, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So the word dom in Hebrew represents sort of like liquid essence of a creature's life, like life itself. It's related to our, the terms Adam or Adam, right? Adam, or which means humanity or or human, and Adama, which means ground. So God makes Adam, Adam, out of Dom, ground. He imbues humanity, people, Adam, with life, Dom. Elsewhere in the scriptures, when we see like blood, it often represents the life or Dom leaving a creature. Death is the loss of Dom, sort of the life force, if you will. So this month I've been reading, actually I wish I had the book with me, it's just a little tiny book, um, The Writings of Irenaeus. 
He was a Greek bishop born around 130 AD in Smyrna, modern-day Turkey. He was influenced heavily by Polycarp, who was a bishop of Smyrna, where Irenaeus was born. And we're talking really early here now. Polycarp was most likely a disciple of John, like that early, which blows my mind. So just to be clear, this guy was influenced by Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, the apostle. So during the persecution of Christians by Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor from 161 to 180, Irenaeus was a priest of the Church of Lyon in modern-day France. In, in this little book I've been reading called Against Heresies, he confronts what's known as Gnosticism. And one of the areas he addresses is the virgin conception. Irenaeus contrasts the first Genesis and what I'm loosely calling the second Genesis, where Mary finds herself in the story. Here's how he put it. The first formed man, Adam, received his substance from the untilled and still virgin earth and was fashioned by the hand of God, that is, the word of God. So Jesus made Adam out of the ground. Similarly, the word recapitulating, which just means to like restate, kind of restating something. Similarly, the word, who is Jesus, recapitulating Adam in himself, very fittingly received from Mary, who was still a virgin, the birth which made recapitulation possible. Why did God not take dust again? Why didn't he just make himself out of ground? Precisely so that there was not some different formation, that it was not some different handiwork which was saved, that it was, not, that it was the very same one which was recapitulated, the likeness being preserved. Okay, so what is he saying here, or at least in part, it's that if Christ had been formed of the ground, like Adam, we'd have an entirely new line of humanity, not the same human race. But Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost, namely us. He came to rescue humanity, the kin of Adam and Eve, not to discard us for an entirely different project. God formed Adam from the ground, or you could say Mother Earth. And Jesus, the second Adam, was formed in the womb of Mary, or as she is sometimes known, Mother Mary. So this is the story Mary is being invited into. And don't miss the optics again. You have Gabriel appearing to the righteous, elderly, Levitical priest, Zechariah, who responds with some doubt and ends up being silenced until Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, bears their son and John is circumcised. And then you have Mary, who is very young, inexperienced, engaged, a woman. And she is the one who gets handed the microphone, so to speak. And soon Elizabeth will too. And of course, if you're concerned about Zachariah's feelings, he'll get his chance here soon. But for now, the gospel writer Luke focuses our eyes on these incredible women. So let's look back at Luke 1, 37 through 38. And Gabriel declares, for the word of God will never fail. To which Mary responds, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Okay, so to try to remedy any, I'll call it emotional numbness that we might feel about this story, I'm going to share what I think is a beautiful poem by a woman named De Denise Levertov. Levertov was born in England in 1923. 
Her father was a Russian Hasidic Jew who later converted to Christianity and became an Anglican priest in the UK. As an adult, she moved to the United States where she lived until she passed away in 1997. Levertov's rich knowledge of Judaism, Christianity, and humanism makes her a fascinating guide, I think, to help us take a fresh look at this story. This is what she said about her own past. She said, my father's Hasidic ancestry his being steeped in Jewish and Christian scholarship and mysticism, his fervor and eloquence as a preacher were factors built into my cells. And her own journey from agnosticism to a late in life conversion to Catholicism shapes a lot of her poetry late in life. And while she, and I would probably have some theological differences, I don't know, her ability to see Mary as a person of courage and agency, I think is moving and helpful. So here's her poem, Annunciation. And I, I just invite you to just sit back and listen. It's not gonna be on the screen, just chill. Annunciation. We know the scene, the room, variously furnished, almost always a lectern, a book, always the tall lily, Arrived on solemn grandeur of great wings, the angelic ambassador, standing or hovering whom she acknowledges, a guest. But we are told of meek obedience. No one mentions courage. The engendering spirit did not enter her without consent. God waited. She was free to accept or to refuse Choice integral to humanness. Aren't there enunciations of one sort or another in most lives? Some unwillingly undertake great destinies, enact them in sullen pride, uncomprehending. More often, those moments when roads of light and storm open from darkness in a man or woman are turned away from in dread, in a wave of weakness, in despair, and with relief. Ordinary lives continue. God does not smite them, but the gates close, the pathway vanishes. She had been a child who played, ate, slept like any other child, but unlike others. Wept only for pity, laughed in joy, not triumph. Compassion and intelligence fused in her, indivisible called to a destiny more momentous than any in all time. She did not quail, only asked a simple, how can this be? And gravely, courteously took to heart the angel's reply, the astounding ministry she, she was offered, to bear in her womb infinite weight and lightness, to carry in hidden finite inwardness nine months of eternity to contain in slender vase of being, the sum of power, in narrow flesh, the sum of light. Then bring to birth, push out into air a man, child, needing like any other milk and love, but who was God. This was the moment no one speaks of when she could still refuse. A breath unbreathed, spirit suspended, waiting. She did not cry, I cannot, I am not worthy, nor 
I have not the strength. She did not submit with gritted teeth, raging, coerced. Bravest of all humans, consent illumined her. The room filled with its light, the lily glowed in it, and the iridescent wings. Consent, courage unparalleled, opened her utterly. So the primary point I want to draw out here is not one of ethics related to Mary's situation, but this line from Levertov, which is this. It says, aren't there annunciations or announcements, you could say. I did a really bad job of announcements earlier. Aren't there annunciations of one sort or another in most lives? It's kind of a provocative question, actually, to meditate on. How do we react when God places something beautiful but scary before us? A doorway we know we could walk through. She, she essentially breaks it down into three categories. She says that some people do undertake great destinies like the one presented to Mary, but do so with pride and without understanding. And most of the time when people see a road before them filled with light and storm, they turn away from it in dread, weakness, and despair and they breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> Their ordinary life continues. God doesn't punish them, but the gate closes and that particular pathway vanishes. And third, not so with Mary. The angel Gabriel reassures her that nothing is impossible with God. And then Gabriel, or I'm sorry, and then Mary takes the first step on the path of light and storm. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. I think it's interesting that Gabriel wasn't like, are you sure? <laughs> Do you know, you know what I just said, right? There was a confidence in Mary that is remarkable. And I'm thinking, how does she have the guts to do any of this? Like, who does she think she is? But remember, in the kingdom of God, it is not by strength that one prevails. So let's hear a little bit more from Mary before we wind things down. What's she going to do? What will she say? Luke 1, 39 through 45 says this. A few days later, Mary heard to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you have believed that the Lord would do what he said. So Mary busted down to the Judean hill country, which would have been down on the map further south, to see her relatives Elizabeth and Zechariah. And remember, Zechariah still can't talk, so he doesn't have very much to say right now. And quickly, some, we'll call them Holy Spirit fireworks erupt. We've got John the Baptist throwing a party in utero, and then you've got Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit, greeting Mary, you are blessed, because you believe that the Lord would do what he said. And that's it. You've got Mary's belief being kind of highlighted again. And then things really ramp up. And this is where Mary's historic response 
serves as our grand finale, so to speak, this morning. This is Mary's Magnificat. Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my soul rejoices in God my Savior, for he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down the princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. So during Advent, during this series, we've been looking at how God draws near to his people. In this story, drawing near to these particular people even. And here again, we see Mary drawing near to God. Same with Elizabeth. Listen to Mary's own words. She says, God took notice of his lowly servant girl, or he has done great things for me. So he, he reflects on her relationship with God. And then notice the pivot in the song from her state toward a view of maybe the covenant faithfulness of God to Israel. And then the coming cosmic redemption. There's sort of these like rings radiating outward. Mary announces a new kingdom a different way of operating. It is an upside down kingdom, a kingdom of holiness, of mercy, of good things. The work of the proud and arrogant will be scattered. The social playing field will be leveled. And the fact that the Apostle Paul includes this song, I'm sorry, the Apostle Luke includes this song, I think really highlights as that it, it exemplifies her character that he would even do that. This is a worship song that will go on to shake history. It has been censored, sliced, diced, and overlooked, and yet here it stands as a gift to us and a testimony to the power of God and the faith of Mary. This is not an image of a woman who is lost or confused. This is a woman who is clear-eyed and free. Or as Denise Levertov put it, consent, courage unparalleled, open her utterly. The text of this powerful song from Mary closely echoes that of another courageous woman named Hannah. We're going to close here. In 1 Samuel 2, we find Hannah's prayer. We don't have time to read the entire prayer, but it's almost uncanny if you have time in 1 Samuel 2. How closely Mary's song mirrors the message and flow of Hannah's prayer following the dedication of her son Samuel to the service of the Lord. She begins very similarly. In verse 1, it says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. And then further down in verse 7, it says, The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the world are the Lord's, on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. In these brave women, we see this. Rejoicing in God. 
and then a reflection on how God opposes the proud and cares for the humble, and then a view of God as one who is doing the saving, and a conclusion that God will bless. It's noticeably absent of kind of modern-day heresies, you could call it, maybe. Uh, Maybe prosperity teaching or misguided self-hatred are two maybe poles of that. It's poetry, heralding that it is not by strength that one prevails. God doesn't require our might for his mission. It's why he came in the form of such weakness, a baby. And this baby's mother teaches us these same truths. Same with Elizabeth, same with Hannah, same with Zechariah and Joseph as well. And it sets the tone for next week, which you guys are not going to believe what happens next in the story. I know you might want to hang on for that. Um, so we serve a mighty and heavenly king, but one who also loves to lift the lowly and accompany them wherever they are. God is our strength. And this is the story of Mother Mary, and it's our story too.